The Ray Hanania Show is brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News Newspaper, the Middle East's leading English language publication with print and online editions in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, France, Japan, Pakistan, England, and the United States. Listen to live radio every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern in Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York, and Ontario, Canada. Or watch the live broadcast on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. The Ray Hanania Show is rebroadcast in Chicago at 12 noon on Thursday. For more information on the radio stations, live Facebook broadcast, and podcasts, visit ArabNews.com. And now, here's your host, columnist and U.S. special correspondent for Arab News, Ray Hanania. Good afternoon, everybody. It's Wednesday, May 4, 2022, and I'm your host, Ray Hanania. Eid Mubarak to my Muslim friends as they celebrate the end of Ramadan this week. We are broadcasting live uh, on Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash Arab News. If you want to watch the show there or you can listen live, hopefully you're in Detroit or Washington, D.C. and in Canada. And tomorrow the show will be rebroadcast in Chicago, Thursday, 12 noon on 1080 a.m. radio, the whole show. Later on in the show, at uh, the bottom of the hour, we're going to be talking with a friend uh, and a spokesman for the National Council on resistance of Iran, uh, Shaheen Gobadi is going to talk about the uh, uh, the negotiations that are taking place with uh, Iran in Vienna uh, over Iran's attempts to build a nuclear weapon and get nuclear power. But right now in this first segment, I'm really happy and proud to announce uh, our guest, Raymond Lopez. He's an alderman of Chicago's 15th Ward. Uh, he's one of the first to speak out against the targeting of Arab stores for closure last summer by Mayor Lori Lightfoot's administration. Um, as many of you may know, Lightfoot closed 150 mostly Arab-owned businesses, but reopened them thanks to the help of Alderman Lopez, uh, who joined the Arab business owners at a press conference in September, demanding that she explain her actions. And when we did the press conference and the media covered it, and there was this demand she kind of completely, at least uh, administratively, reversed herself, and all the businesses were miraculously reopened. Um, Alderman Lopez, uh, not surprisingly, he's probably one of the most outspoken members of the city council. I covered Chicago City Council for 17 years. Uh, this is one of my favorite aldermen. I've I met so many over the years, but Ray Lopez is phenomenal. He also announced he's going to run for mayor of Chicago in the February 28, 2023 primary. Alderman Lopez, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Ray, it's my pleasure to join you on your show and absolutely Mubarak to all of our Muslim brothers and sisters who've gone through Ramadan. Thank you to everyone who invited me to Iftar dinners. I think I've gained about 12 pounds in all of the, the wonderful feasts I've participated in. Um, but I am absolutely a friend to the Arab community not just in word, but in action, as you said, and, and I will continue to be that friend. Yeah, and in today's world, you think that people would be more respectful. Why would you do something so stupid to target a single, I mean, if the majority, even if she says, I didn't target Arabs, I just targeted store owners, okay, 90% of them were Arab, 
why would why would somebody like that do that in today's world? What kind of administration is that? That just shows how tone deaf and clueless Lori Lightfoot is to addressing the number one issue in the city of Chicago, which is the out of control crime and violence that we see and to blame the owners of gas stations and stores simply because that's where the crime ended up at in their parking lots or next to them on the sidewalks uh, was a complete uh, miscalculation on her part. I think personally, she felt the Arab community would be an easy community to target in the black community because she was just fueling the fires that exist with the animosity that is in some neighborhoods over who owns what, where. Um, And I think it was just a a poor human decision, uh, especially as someone who is proud to say that they are a person of color to re-victimize other people of color, other minorities, for what she was hoping would be a quick political gain. Thankfully, uh, our our brother stood strong against her. Uh, You, the Arab American Chamber of Commerce, and others stood up against her and didn't take one on the chin for her. And like you said, magically everything disappeared. All the violations, all the questions evaporated overnight. It was amazing. You know, the media, if you can, you know, that you you touched on something that was so important. She recognized us as weak in terms of our presence. We have a bit, we contribute to the businesses. We support the city. We've done everything. I was a veteran during the Vietnam War. My dad and uncle were veterans during World War II. We're as American as she's ever been. Um, but she saw us as a weak community and she saw, hey, maybe I could blame it on these 24 hour stores right. where the gangbangers in the middle of the night can run to and say they were d- going to buy potato chips right. um, and let's shut them all down. Not thinking about the consequences. Right. And, the, mean, millions of, this- and the millions of dollars, as you know, that those closures cost not only the city of Chicago, but close the small business owners who were impacted. Right. And for no reason other than try to find something wrong, try to find something to write a ticket on, try to find something to justify this action. You know, government shouldn't be in the business of victimizing people just to create a narrative. We've seen plenty of that at other levels of government. Right. Mainly the federal level. And I don't want to replicate their nonsensical governance here in the city of Chicago. We could, we know who we are. We know that the Arab community is just as integral as any other immigrant community. You know, this week we're celebrating the Polish community. You know, I'm, you know, my my Mexican community, we've done Irish community in March. We are all part of the fabric and to just pull on one thread and say that they're the problem is, is disgusting and tasteless to say the least. Yeah, we I'd say the Arab community over the past, uh, geez, 10 years has had a miserable time. When Rahm Emanuel was first elected as mayor, we tried to support him. But the very first thing he did was he shut the Arab uh, Arab festival. It had only been going on five years. You know how much effort it took us to get that first. You know, I mean, it's we it's have a easy. small. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's not a small community, but it's smaller than others. We finally got it going. It was very good. Maybe there were some controversies, the little political politics in the background, but the majority of it was everybody enjoyed it. First thing he did, he shut it down. Then he eliminated the Arab Advisory Council. He shut that down. And then he never recognized Arabs. He always did an iftar for Muslims, but he's not stupid. He's very smart. 
He knows the majority of Muslims in the Chicago area, and Chicago are non-Arab, 75%. So he could shut down the Arabs and still pretend like he cared about Muslims. It really was depressing. And then Lori Lightfoot comes in. She promises she's going to have an open-door administration. I try to reach out to her to interview her. And then I keep hearing, no, you know, I'm only going to do interviews with black reporters from the community. I'm going, what? What What happened to the openness? <laughs> right. Well, I think a lot of people have had the uh, the buyer's remorse with this administration. And and we know that, you know, the, the Arab community, unfortunately, and the Arab voter is oftentimes taken for granted. Uh, I, for one, um, grew up with... Uh, Arabs in my community, in my neighborhood growing up, we came up together in high school. I'm no stranger to the community. And I look forward to the day when we could have the Arab festivals again, where we can yeah. celebrate, which is what I believe in is the key quintessential Chicago nature is to celebrate our ethnic diversity, to invite all communities to come and taste our food, hear our music and enjoy our good company. And there's no reason that the Arab community can't be the same part of that tradition as the Mexican community, that the Chinese community that has their festivals, Korean community, and so on and so forth, like so many communities throughout the city. You know, we need to get back to celebrating our diversity because truly that's the one thing we all have in common. We're all from everywhere in this yeah. city. So there's no reason to discriminate or pick sides because we can live under one roof uh, and enjoy each other. And we will do that again soon. Now, I, again, I, as I mentioned, I covered City Hall for 17, 18 years from daily to daily. And I'll tell you what, I watched every mayoral election, how every candidate ran. And I think you have a great shot at running for mayor in February. I, I, I know it's tough with this new open primary because they got what they may have 10 candidates running. Everybody splits the vote. The top two vote getters win unless you get 50 plus one, which is very possible. You're the only Hispanic candidate that I know of that has announced that they're running for office. And I think that's phenomenal. That gives you that little enough of a base where with 10 candidates, you could for sure be in that first, those top two uh, positions. It's very much a possibility. And I think we will accomplish that if I'm not able to do it outright, depending on how many candidates and who those candidates are matters. Right. And to be clear, most of the people who are now trying to run are doing so because they see that Lori Lightfoot is politically weak. But right. the better question is, when she wasn't weak, where were they in standing up in defense of the city of Chicago? When the looters were coming to the city, breaking windows, destroying many of your listeners' stores. We were big targets. Up? We were big Nobody. targets. Yeah. Nobody but myself pleading with her to do something, and I was written off as just trying to gain some sort of notoriety. Well, I'm still here standing and I'm still here standing for my community, for your community, for your right to be in my in every neighborhood and prosper, to pursue the American dream. And whether it's in a, one election or two, I'm in this to win this, make no mistake about it. And I look forward to the day when we have a mayor who understands all ethnic communities, appreciates them genuinely and doesn't just pay, pay lip service and welcomes them back into City Hall because there should be a place for everybody at this table. We shouldn't have to pick sides and choose who we want to let in the door. You know, my door has been open for years. I've never hid from anybody because I always tell people the truth. So I don't see that changing a year from now. And I look forward to the day when 
your listeners, yourself even, can come back to the fifth floor at 121 North LaSalle and feel welcome and not looked at with suspicion, as is the case now. And I, and I know the answers to these questions, but I'm gonna, I want to ask them because I know there are a lot of people out there listening now live uh, on these various radio stations that will be broadcast in Chicago tomorrow. They can watch it on Facebook. Um, this uh, Arab festival, will you restore it for the Arab community if we want it? And I'm assuming we do. I'm happy to work and direct the uh, Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events as mayor to work with the Arab community and leaders to do what is wanted by the community. And if that means bringing back the festival, so be it. Yeah, festivals are great, aren't they? You learn. I learned so much about the uh, Irish community walking in the St. Patrick's Day Parade. I learned so much about the Polish community. This weekend, by the way, is uh, happy Cinco de Mayo uh, to all our Hispanic and Latin and Mexican uh, uh, audience out there. Um, Polish Constitution Day is on the Pol- same day. Mm-hmm. Polish Constitution Day. Um, there's so many things going on, and it's just a matter, not just of pride, but it exposes the community to other ethnic groups that maybe they're not aware of, and yep. that breaks down fear when you get to know them once you eat with someone once you talk to them once you enjoy some music all of those other separators tend to dissipate and going back to the to the arab american fest you know chicago is a global city that could help us fuel tourism in the city as people from all throughout not only your listenership but throughout the country and world come here for what should be a world-class Arab American festival in the city of Chicago. That is definitely a possibility on par with all the great other festivals, jazz, gospel, you know, everything that happens downtown, wherever we want to put it, we can do it if we have the will to do it. And I look forward to that. Who has better food than the Arab Americans? Okay. Stuff, great, please. Hummus, (laughs) stuff, uh, zucchini, lamb. It's all great. Well, Mexican food is phenomenal too. Right here. Your listeners don't know, but you've seen me go to town on uh, oh, Arab yeah. food. So, <laughs> yes, and I'm going to assume that Eric, that everybody is that you've been so open to everybody, and I think being open to the Arab community is a litmus test um, for how people are when they say they talk about diversity. The fact that they reach out to us, and I'm telling you, I don't mean we're on a lower scale, but we're at the bottom of the priority list often. And people don't reach out to us. You did right away. You didn't hesitate to come to that press conference and and demand answers. You know, we didn't know what the cause was, but you stood up there and you. I remember your speech. So many Arabs were like looking, going, wow, this is a city official who's speaking out to defend us. There were so few. I think uh, Silvana Tabaris was another one who helped us. And I know that uh, Alderman uh, Gilbert uh, Villegas is going to help us. And I know that there is a uh, forum. They try. I think they introduced a, a resolution to try to get a hearing in the city council to just find out what happened. We can't even get the facts on what happened last year. Yeah, and the fact that we're still trying to figure that out yeah. is remarkable. And I, I'm very thankful to my colleagues that you mentioned, Alderman Tavares and Viegas, for standing with the community. But I think, you know, this is something that was brought down by the administration. It was at their direction to push out the inspectors, push out the departments to harass and victimize our local business owners for the sake of 
political points. That should never be the case, particularly in a city that considers it the most American of American cities and, quite frankly, is the most global city we have. Forget my dog. No, those are your two dogs I see on Facebook all the time. Really nice. So, so, so why, why, um, what was it that provoked you or prompted you to run for mayor? Was there a specific incident or was it a pattern of issues that she started out being so positive and I really was encouraged and I thought maybe things will, you know, be well, but something changed. And for you, what was it that got you thinking this is wrong and I need to do something about it? Well, I, first and foremost, I didn't support her when she ran for mayor. Actually, I had a, a different horse in the race in the, in the primary. And then when it came to the runoff, I figured it's not my place to get in the middle of history. Chicago was going to have its first black female mayor. I didn't want to pick a sign. Let the, let the let Chicagoans go for who they wanted to go. And they picked Lori, which was fine. Um, but I, I'll never forget, you know, her inaugur- our inauguration when she turned around and gave us all the dirty look. Uh, in front of our families, accusing us all of being corrupt members of the city council. Um, that's a bad taste. Now, I tried to work with her. I tried to sit down with her. I think in the last three years, she and I have sat down a total of a whopping two times uh, for about 45 minutes. Um, and it, And from then until now, it's always been very dismissive, very argumentative, and clearly someone who doesn't know the mechanics of government and is not interested in learning about what exactly is going on on the streets. And I've been asked before, what was that one breaking point? I don't think there was a singular breaking point. It's just been a slow, steady drip of bad leadership. And now the bucket is full and we have to empty the bucket of bad leadership and start fresh. And that's what this election is going to allow us to do because in my ward, I've been able to represent African-Americans and Latinos in four different neighborhoods in in four different directions, along with some uh, Arab members, as well as some uh, Eastern European, Polish and Lithuanian folks. We have a whole house full of people in the 15th Ward. And what I've been able to do is inspire people. They may not know each other, but they all know me. And we use that trust that they have in me to help each other. That's what a good leader does. And we've never had that from this mayor. And it's been a while since we've had a a mayor from this city who understands its neighborhoods, who understands that, you know, being in charge in Chicago is like wrangling cats. You got got to hurt them all in the same direction. It's not easy, but it takes work. And if you're committed to it, then it starts just flowing naturally. And there are so many things that are going sideways in this city because the mayor is not aware not trying to educate herself. She's focusing only on berating the police department and browbeating members of the city council that there are so many other things that we're missing. Our our ability to deliver city services is falling to the wayside. Our ability to attract and build up economic areas is falling apart because as many of your business owners will tell you, it takes almost two years to get a permit in this city. Nobody can wait two years for the city of Chicago's governmental bodies to decide what they're going to do if you're trying to open a business. We are we are becoming our own worst enemy, and we've gone from being the city that works to the city that doesn't move. That has to change, and I've seen and grown up in a city where that wasn't the case, and we are going to get ourselves back to that point in 10 months. At a time when the economic environment has been so rough, 
you would think a mayor would reach out and support businesses, not hammer them. It it just what she did just didn't make any sense. But I, I think it has to do with her inability to deal with crime in the city. And I think that crime starts with supporting the police. And I don't know what what do you think is the answer? How do you deal with crime and putting it in its place? You can't eliminate it 100 percent, but you can sure bring it down where people start to feel safe. You have to call out the cancer in front of you. You can't sugarcoat it. You can't dance around the edges. You have to call out what's in front of you and who's doing it. In my ward, in the 15th ward, you know, I've represented some of the most gang-infested neighborhoods in the city of Chicago. Back of the Yards, for example, used to be in the top 10 list of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the city of Chicago because of the generational gang violence that was there spanning decades, long before my arrival as alderman. But what I did was I started identifying the problem players, identifying the slumlords and vacant landlords who were giving them cover, identifying those community leaders and organizations that were enabling the bad behavior. And And I said to the community, enough. You're not meant to live like this. And sometimes the simple act of just saying enough and drawing that line and sticking to it is enough to get the ball rolling. But you have to stand firm and you have to be willing to tell your community when they are wrong and to support the police. And you've got to tell the police, I need you to go specifically in a professional and constitutional way after those magnets of violence so that everyone else can live in peace in a community. And we were able to bring down our crime stats year over year over year in a sustainable way, so much so that with my former commander who went on to become a a chief of instruction, we were recognized by the University of Chicago's crime lab as having sustainably lowered all major crime stats in three years, reversing decades of downward trends in three years. Now, if we could do that here, we could do that everywhere. You just have to have the commitment You have to have the trust of the people and you have to have the support of the police who will believe that you are going to be with them from start to finish. No matter who gets upset because someone's going to jail or because of what actions were taken to restore order in the streets, that you are with them because that you have to finish what you start. And I I know that, uh, you know, she has I felt that if I were a city hall reporter today, and by the way, I remember the uh, committeemen and the uh, aldermen of the 15th Ward back in the 70s, Frank Savickas and Frank Brady. Now, that was a whole different time. Machine politics was machine politics back then. You know, I don't sugarcoat it and pretend like it wasn't machine politics. But today it's so much it's supposed to be so much more open. And yet she's running the city council like she has her own machine. And if you don't agree with her and you tell me if I'm wrong, um, she goes after you, and sometimes her rhetoric and her language is so, uh, uh, I'm going to say disappointing, because the language she has used has been just demeaning to the office of mayor, I think. No, without question, you know, she de- she decries all the worst of politics while applying all the worst of politics. And it's interesting to see the mayor still running against the machine, the man, the bird, whatever she's going to throw out. Right. There, um, while not 
recognizing the fact that she is the machine. She is the man. She is the one in charge of the apparatus known as City Hall. You're not running against yourself because everything now falls on your feet. And as much as she tries to deflect from her responsibility and ownership of that, I think the voters and people of Chicago know better. She might not have been born here, but everyone else that was knows that all roads lead back to the fifth floor. You are in charge. And when she sees how pet, when people see how petty she is towards Alderman sticking her finger in people's faces or, or making obscene comments to various ethnic groups about, you know, various body parts, you know, all of that is uncalled for. All of that is unseemly. And for as much as she berated former president Donald Trump for all of his misogynistic views, she has no problem repeating every single one of them in her own unique way. Being the same way you criticize somebody for something and then you are in, you reformat it to yourself and do the exact same thing. She's shouting at the mirror. Yeah, if I if I were at City Hall today, one of my big stories would be um, why isn't her misuse of tax dollars for purely political reasons to give. I know that people are hurting, you know, because of the rising gas prices and the food, but it's across the board. It's everybody. And to use money, tax money to play politics and make people feel happy by giving away gas cards. And not to everybody, just to those people that I think she's pandering to a base that she hopes she can build up as a voting base. I think that's so wrong. And I'm just shocked that I don't think the media is really taking her to task enough. Is she getting a pass by the media or is the media really kind of up to par in terms of what she's doing? No, I think I think you're more up to par on what's going on than, than what some of the mainstream media is, in part because you're already not allowed into the press room as it is. Most of mainstream media in the city of Chicago uh, knows that if they aggravate her, they're going to be booted out of the press corps. So they're being very ginger. There's very, they're walking that line very gingerly trying to get to the answer, but without aggravating her. You're hundred percent right. It should be criminal that you're giving away 12 and a half million dollars in gas cards not to the entire city, but to 5,000 people in 12 specific neighborhoods uh, who you hope, who you wish to create a, a political base with. Right. If I did that, I'd oh. be in federal court right now. Yeah. Uh, I'd be in jail. Now, you look at the, tw- and people will say, well, it's just $12.5 million. But it's $12.5 million here, it's 10 here, it's 20 there. We're already at $60 million in free giveaways just in time for Lori Lightfoot's re-election kickoff party. And that is incredible that we're doing, that she's getting allowed, getting a pass to do this and is allowed to do it by the members of the city council. She almost lost this one. It barely won with 26 votes, which as you know, is unheard of. It is. But there are real things that if you really cared about the struggles people are facing, then you fix them. Let's start by fixing the safety on CTA, which is the lifeblood for many of our residents to get to and from work. Let's start with creating daycare options for single mothers who have to decide whether or not to go to work or stay home because they have no one to watch their kids. Let's look at maybe beefing up, as one of my colleagues, I believe Alderman Tavares and Beale said, 
buy a new helicopter for the police so we could catch these criminals, since the other one seems to never work. There were a lot of good suggestions that the city council members who care came up with, but were ignored by the majority and Lifeline. But again, I have faith in your listeners and viewers and in the voters who know pandering when they see it. Yeah. Who know a politician who's desperately clinging for her political life and they're not about to give her a life raft. Yeah. I listen, I've been yelled at. I've been threatened by Jay McMullen, the husband of uh of Chicago's he was gonna punch me in the nose in the and I was at City Hall. So City Hall should be a war zone for the press, not a cheering zone for a mayor. And yep. it's kind of sad. I, I think that I'm just surprised that that issue hasn't become a bigger issue because if any other mayor had done it, it would be over. We only got a couple minutes left and I want to give you an opportunity. Is there anything else that I haven't brought up that you want to say, or, you know, the add to our conversation? You know, I, I think we've had a, a great robust conversation. I look forward to seeing a city hall that's inclusive of the Arab American community, not just for our cultural events, but for the policymaking and, and the decision-making positions that are in that, in that building, because we can rebuild our city in a way that's inclusive and better and works for everybody. The reason that people get away with what they do up to this point is because there's too many people there who don't look like us, don't come from our neighborhoods, don't come from our families, and aren't fighting for us. We have the opportunity to change that, and I know that my Arab brothers and sisters will join me next February and making sure that this is a city that works for all of us and not just some of us. All right. Raymond Lopez, he's the alderman of the 15th Ward. He's also uh, running for mayor of Chicago, and he's been at the front line of every issue that's challenged Arab Americans. And to me, as an Arab American, that's important. But it tells me that there's some real foundation to his commitment to diversity and making Chicago a better place. Thank you so much, uh, Alderman, for joining us. Mayoral candidate. Oh, is there a website where people can go yes. to get information? Yes. Any of your listeners can go to www.raymondlopezchicago.com, find out more information, sign up to volunteer, and do all the other great things that campaigns need. We're going to promote the hell out of that for you. Thank you, Alderman. <laughs> Thank you. All right. That's sure. my guest, uh, Alderman Ray Raymond Lopez from the 15th Ward. Um, talking about his support of uh, the Arab American community and his uh, issues that he's going to be addressed, uh, addressing as a candidate for mayor of Chicago in the February 28th, 2023 election. Alderman, good luck. We'll talk to you again. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you as always. All right. We're going to take a break here at the Ray Hanania radio show. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Shaheen Gobani uh, about what's happening with Iran um, so uh, let's take a break. We'll be right back right after these messages. Arabnews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at Arabnews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. Arabnews.com, news that matters to you. In a perfect world, everyone would be a perfect driver. Hands at nine and three, everyone. Nine and three. Everyone would follow all the rules. Please, go ahead and merge. I'll make room. Thank you, fellow driver. 
and nothing unexpected would ever happen. Even the squirrels would know the right time to safely cross the road. In this perfect world, you wouldn't have to wear a seatbelt. But in case you hadn't noticed, we don't live in a perfect world. About a thousand people in Michigan die each year in vehicle crashes, and thousands more are injured. Wearing your seatbelt reduces your risk of death in a crash by 45% in a car and by 60% in a pickup truck. So until we find a perfect world to drive in, make our imperfect world safer by buckling up. A message from the Michigan Office of Highway Safety Planning. بعد تطعيم أكثر من ثلاثة بلايين شخص حول العالم بشكل كامل بلقاح كوفيد 19 تمت الآن الموافقة على تلقيح الأطفال من عمر 5 إلى 11 سنة فقد أثبتت الدراسات بعد تجارب سريرية مع أطفال حول العالم أن جرعتي اللقاح المخصصة لهم آمنة وفعالة يوصي الأطباء بتلقيح الأطفال من سن الخامسة فما فوق من أجل حماية الأصحاء منهم أو ذوي الظروف الصحية الصعبة الطفل جزء من المجتمع وهو معرض لأن يصاب بالفيروس ويمكن أن يحمله لعائلته ولمن حوله احمي طفلك وعائلتك ومجتمعك لقح طفلك ليكون بأمان في المدرسة أو مع العائلة والأصدقاء وأثناء ممارسة الرياضة تحدث لطبيبك واكتشف الحقائق بنفسك أو زر موقع michigan.gov/kids-covid-vaccine رسالة من وزارة الصحة والخدمات الإنسانية في ميشيغان. Imagine you're on a train track, somewhere miles away. A train is headed your way. You can't see it yet, but it's coming, slowly but surely. If you have prediabetes or you're at risk for type 2 diabetes, you may be on the wrong track, and diabetes could be heading your way. Bit by bit, the danger is getting closer and closer. So should you stay on the track you're on now, or move to make a change and reduce your risk? If you have prediabetes or you're at risk for type 2 diabetes, you may qualify for the National Diabetes Prevention Program in your local community. This one-year program could be the ongoing support you need to put you on the right track. Not only did participants lose weight, they cut their risk of type 2 diabetes in half. Ready to get on board for a healthier future? Learn more about the National Diabetes Prevention Program and what else you can do to manage and prevent diabetes at michigan.gov diabetes. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday 8 to 5, and Saturday 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. Life's too short to be in pain. 
The Ray Hanania Show is brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News Newspaper, the Middle East's leading English language publication with print and online editions in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, France, Japan, Pakistan, England, and the United States. Listen to live radio every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern in Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York, and Ontario, Canada. Or watch the live broadcast on facebook.com forward slash Arab News. The Ray Hanania Show is rebroadcast in Chicago at 12 noon on Thursday. For more information on the radio stations, live Facebook broadcast, and podcasts, visit ArabNews.com. And now, here's your host, columnist and U.S. special correspondent for Arab News, Ray Hanania. And welcome back to segment two here at the Ray Hanania Show on uh, WNZK AM 690, WDMV AM 700, and Washington, D.C., WTORAM 770 uh, in Canada, and uh, tomorrow at 12 noon Thursday in Chicago on WNWI AM 1080 Radio. I'm really uh, happy to uh, introduce our next guest, uh, Shaheen Gobadi. He's a member of the National Council of Resistance of Iran and a spokesperson for the NCRI. Um, and Shaheen, welcome to the program this, this afternoon. Thank you, Ray, for having me, and I wish you and all your listeners a very, very good and prosperous day. Thank you so much. And before we get into the issues, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, what, how, how has, you know, this uh, brutality that has taken over Iran impacted your life and your family? And, you know, I mean, this has been going on for what now, 40 years, uh, more, right? Actually, 43 years. Um, I'm a U.S. educated nuclear engineer. Actually, I'm a U.S. educated uh, thermal nuclear engineer. I've been uh, with the Iranian resistance uh, for almost the past 40 years. I'm 60 years old. Uh, I went to school in California, UCLA, to be specific. Then I joined the resistance. First in Los Angeles, then I moved to Washington. I was based in Washington for 10 years. And then I've been based in Paris um, ever since. Uh, Paris is the political headquarters of the National Council of Resistance of Iran, which is like the parliament in exile of the Iranian resistance, uh, encompassing uh, various uh, political groups, which are anti-Shah, anti-Mullah, looking forward for a secular democratic uh, uh, government in Iran. And democratic one, as I said, a, a, a secular one. And uh, I've been with the movement uh, ever since. And do you have family back there in Iran, or relatives? I mean, and that's kind of a touchy issue. No, no, uh, it's okay. I, my, my relatives, uh, my dad and mom and my two brothers uh, used to live in Iran until very recently. Uh, they had to flee because of all the uh, problems the regime caused them and a lot of uh, calamities that was brought on them. But uh, I've lost many, 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 many friends over the years, uh, dozens and dozens, people who went to school together, people who grew up together. And there has been a lot of uh, hardship on my parents. But uh, my situation has been much milder compared to millions and millions of other Iranians. Uh, Let's put it like this. Um, Since 1981, some 120,000 political activists uh, over 100,000 of them from the main Iranian resistance movement, uh, the People's Mujahideen Organization of Iran, have been executed by the 
uh, theocracy ruling Iran simply for standing firm for democracy, human rights, and a secular government uh, and gender equality. And that includes tens of thousands of women, uh, which is an amazing aspect of our resistance movement in Iran. Uh, and uh, hundreds of thousands of others who have been imprisoned, incarcerated, and severely tortured. So that uh, two numbers should give you a good uh, view of what has been going on in Iran for the past four decades. Now, I know that, uh, and, and I think it's uh, you know important that people know that you're a thermal nuclear engineer. That's your training. You understand that industry. A lot of us only see the images, but you actually know what it all means. You know the details. You know the signs. Um, is Iran close to building a nuclear weapon? And have they been using these negotiations now that have been going on, what, eight, nine months um, at, to leading nowhere um, in Vienna? Um, are they just using that to continue building their weapon? And do you think that they're going to have a nuclear weapon soon? Well, actually, uh, let's put it like this. The Iranian resistance, namely the People's Mujahideen Organization of Iran, have been the key factor, the key player that has brought the issue of the Iranian nuclear program to the international attention. Actually, if it were not for the uh, Iranian resistance activities uh, through more than 120 uh, press conferences and revelations, either regarding these secret Iranian nuclear sites, projects, uh, facilities, and so on and so forth, the world had been totally caught off guard regarding the Mullah's uh, secret drive to acquire nuclear weapons. And by now, the world would have been faced with the predicament of the worst uh, regime being uh, equipped with the worst uh, weapon. Actually, we have been, this has been a part of our struggle for the past three decades to expose to our vast human network inside Iran, the vast network of the Mujahideen, the MEK, inside Iran, taking huge risks to expose the Mullah's various aspects of the mullah's drive to acquire nuclear weapons so the mullahs look have been trying to stay in power on three pillars brutal repression torture and executions at home which i gave you a glimpse of it making an atomic bomb and also inciting war and terrorism abroad uh, which no boundaries uh, the mullahs have been playing for time to acquire nuclear weapons. This is an integral part of their strategy for survival. They have never been forthcoming transparent with the international community. Uh, and as I said, if it were not for our revelations, they would have had the bomb by now and we were facing a different situation. Uh, in our view, the mullahs will never stop their uh, bomb making program regardless of the result of the negotiations. But actually they want to cake and eat it too at the same time. Uh, and they have been very deceitful. But I think the mullah's main problem is inside Iran, facing the Iranian people. Uh, let me provide a very succinct overview of what's prevailing inside Iran, which, as I said, the, is the mullah's the biggest challenge. In, Iran is a very rich nation. Uh, it has about 1% of the world population, but has about 7 to 8% of the world uh, you know, uh, means or uh, wealth. Let's put it like this. It's a very rich nation in terms of oil, gas, and all sorts of other natural resources and a huge land. But despite all of that, 
Today in Iran, according to the regime's own figures, at least 70 to 80 percent of the population live below the poverty line. Uh, some people have been forced to sell their body parts to survive. According to the regime's own press, some destitute women sell their newborns for as only as $32. You heard me correct, $32. Oh. Oh. Uh, five to eight million innocent children have been driven to the cruel labor market. Uh, at least 5,000 of them spend 10 to 11 hours a day uh, scavenging garbage in Tehran. So the businessmen affiliated with the Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, could profit, you know, huge amounts of money even from them. Uh, this is the situation in Iran today. And as I said, it has nothing to do with sanctions. Actually, it's all because of the regime's own policies. To prove that, uh, despite this situation, uh, Iranian, Iranian uh, society now has more number of billionaires compared to any other country in the Middle East. Really? Wow. Yes, that's because of, and this is only limited to the people who are directly affiliated with the regime or, or, or uh, basically are in constant dealing with the regime or part of the basically system. So you can see the big, you know, these big two contrasts here. And that has made the situation very, very volatile. One aspect of the Iranian society that people do not see is that the Iranian people have stood up against the regime. I told you two figures, 120,000 executions. From one aspect, this is sheer brutality. On the other aspect, it shows the level of the Iranian people's resistance that have persevered for the past four decades. Men and women from all walks of life, all social strata. And this has actually been on the rise, particularly in the last uh, uh, four years. Since January 2018, there have been eight nationwide uprisings in Iran against the regime. And in some of them, like November 2019, it uh, cut so quickly throughout the country, it uh, spread to some 200 cities with people chanting down with Khamenei, the supreme leader, and down to the whole regime. And the regime had to massacre 1,500 protesters in broad daylight in a few days to keep the situation at bay. But even that has not stopped people from coming to the streets. Uh, only in 2021, in 21 nationwide protests and strikes teachers, which constitute more than 1 million people, have come to streets. And also, add to that, there has been a remarkable surge in the activities of the resistance units, which are affiliated to the Mujahideen al MEK, and their activities has been on a constant rise. Uh, again, put it in the context for you, on January 27 of this year, the resistance unit disrupted 25 of the regime's television radio channels and broadcast their slogans, down uh, death to Khamenei, and hail to Rajavi, uh, who is the leader of the resistance. And again, on April 25, more than 100 servers and computers of the uh, Ministry of Agriculture were disrupted by the resistance unit. In January, the resistance unit uh, set fire to the statue of terror mastermind Qasem Soleimani in capital of one of the Iranian uh, provinces. And uh, in the past few weeks and months, the resistance units have repeatedly broadcast anti-regime slogans in busy locations, in large cities, in shopping malls, uh, down with Khamenei, Langley, Rajavi, and all of that. So people are standing up, and the resistance is on the rise, and that's what makes the mullahs much more uh, vulnerable. 
and much more worried about their future. So in this context, they are clinching more to the drive to acquire nuclear weapons and also resorting more to terrorism. You have to remember in 2018, an Iranian official diplomat based in Vienna uh, brought a bomb with himself in a diplomatic bag in a commercial airline from Iran to Vienna, then handed over to three of the regime's operatives in Luxembourg, two of them in Luxembourg, who were trying to blow up the international gathering in support of the Iranian resistance with the presence of more than 100,000 people and 600 dignitaries the world over. And they were, uh, luckily they were uh, foiled at the last minute and the diplomat was put on trial and is facing now 20 years of imprisonment in Belgium. So that shows the regime is becoming very, very uh, frantic and very worried. Uh, and this is the situation. And time is very much ticking in against them. And what is what is preventing regime change? It sounds like there's a very vibrant resistance inside Iran, not just outside. Uh, a resistance inside Iran that is getting support from outside. But what is preventing us from changing Iran and making it the democracy that people want? Actually, two things. First of all, as I said, brute repression. Uh, the regime has resorted all of the income to support its uh, repressive apparatus, uh, multi-layers of repressive apparatus, particularly the revolutionary guards. Actually, they control the vast part of the Iranian economy. And that's why we think it's foolhardy to even think to remove the IRGC from the uh, U.S. terror uh, list as a part of these nuclear negotiations. And that's what Tehran wants, because they, it needs the guards to have a free reign in their activities uh, so they can have access to more funds. But what has over the years been very helpful for the regime is this what are described as appeasement policy, both uh, from both sides of both sides of the Atlantic, in particular Europe, which have always looked the other way and have tried to find a way to appease the mullahs and placate them and reward them concessions, which are absolutely unwarranted. And this has been provided like a lifeline for the regime. But now that has been proven to be very, very counterproductive. Let me tell you what happened today. Uh, today, a trial ended up in Sweden. Now, what was what that did entail? In 1988, there was a massacre in Iran upon a fatwa, a religious order or decree by Khomeini, the founder of the regime, in which 30,000 political prisoners were executed in a matter of a few weeks. And 90% of them belong to the People's Mujahideen of Iran because they stood firm in their belief against the absolute rule of the clergy for democracy and human rights. Nobody has held accountable for that massacre. Actually, one of the key players of the massacre is now the current Iranian president. So it clearly shows that this is a part of the regime's DNA. One of the perpetrators was arrested in Sweden while he was traveling back in November of 2019. And after nine months of trial, his trial finished today in Sweden. And the sentence is supposed to be handed over in uh, July the 14th. And his name is Hamid Nouri. So for years and years, Europeans looked the other way either when it came to terrorism, when it came to gross human rights uh, violations and so on and so forth, and some US administrations as well. And we think this has been totally, totally counterproductive. And the time has come to stand with the Iranian people and their desire for democracy and human rights. And I should tell you, the resistance has an identifiable leader called Madame Maryam Rajavi. 
She has a 10-point plan for future of Iran, which calls for a democratic, secular um, uh, republic Iran, with separation of church and state, with total gender equality, total freedom of expression, religion, and uh, uh, abolishment of death penalty and non-nuclear Iran, an Iran that lives in peace and tranquility with the rest of the world. And obviously it has uh, attracted lots of lots of support inside Iran, also in the US Congress, bipartisan way, as well as the you know, British House of Commons and House of Lords and so on and so forth. So uh, there is an alternative, there's a viable alternative, which is all the elements for change. And we think the world should stand on, on its side. When you look at the negotiations and follow them in Vienna, it doesn't look like the Iranians are that there is going to be any agreement. It looks like this JCPOA is going to continue to be, uh, you know, non-binding on anybody. What what does that do? I mean, are you are you fearful that there will be an agreement or are you confident that there won't be an agreement and Iran will be subject to more sanctions? Actually, we think the regime has to be subject to more sanctions. Uh, it hasn't done anything that warrants any softening of approach towards this regime, rather quite contrary. Look, when an agreement was signed in July 2015 between the Obama administration and the regime and, and, and the French and the Germans and the Brits and the Chinese and the Russians, we said, look, an agreement that does not close the regime's path towards a nuclear bomb is not going to stop the drive. We said if the West holds firm, the regime has no choice but to concede to the West. Unfortunately, that was not a desire at the time, uh, particularly by the Obama administration. And look what happened. The mullahs took billions of dollars. It all ended up in the uh, coffers of the regime's leaders, Khamenei in particular, or the IRGC top brass, or was helped to prop up uh, regime's surrogates and terrorist groups in the region and to increase the regime's capability in missiles program and so on and so forth. And the regime never, never, never gave up its nuclear weapons program. So, and it never became transparent in its uh, drive to acquire nuclear weapons. So we think such an agreement, even if it's held, is no guarantee that the regime does not get nuclear weapons. Rather, the six UN Security Council resolutions that were rescinded as a result of the JCOPA has to be reinforced. More sanctions have to be imposed. And in particular, the regime has to be held accountable for gross violations of human rights, in particular the 1988 massacre, which by all means is a crime against humanity and even a genocide, in which all of the regime's top leaders, including Khamenei, the Raisi, have been directly involved, as it was established in the trial in Sweden. It sounds like, though, that... It sounds like this whole process, though, is kind of stuck, that it's not moving in either direction because this has been going on for many, many months and there's no change. If you had to estimate if uh, how much terrorism around the world do you think Iran is responsible for? Well, they are by far the most active state sponsor of terror for years and years. Their tentacles have reached as far away as Europe, even the United States, even Latin America, uh, needless to say, throughout Europe, Middle East. Look, what I just explained to you a few minutes ago is very shocking. You have an estate which is diplomat, which is accredited in Europe, goes to its capital, and a state makes them a bomb, a state of the art. He puts it in his bag, 
yeah. and has no qualms about you know flying in a uh, commercial airline. I mean, all these other poor passengers have no idea that they have a bomb on board. He comes to Austria. He try, drives more than 1,000 kilometers with a bomb in his car. Uh, he hands it over the bomb to the would-be terrorists in a pizza hut. And the aim is to blow up a meeting of more than 100,000 people. Obviously, the main target of the uh, operation was Madame Mariam Rajavi because she is the regime's number one enemy. Uh, but in that meeting, there were, you know, children, women, men of all ages, and as I said, six hundred dignitaries. What did the world were, do? What did the world do about it? And that's the whole point. Look, uh, the diplomat was arrested. His, his three culprits. They went through a long period of investigation and tried in Belgium because it was uh, the Belgians who found out about it with the help of other uh, security forces of other European countries. It was a coordinated operation. And when the court condemned the terrorists for the maximum sentence of 20 years, there was no reaction by the European Union. That's the whole point. And like, because they were in the middle of nuclear talks and other, they were hoping they would make it. Are they just used to it? Is the, are, is the West just used to it? They've come after 43 years. They're just accustomed to the violence and the terrorism from Iran. And they're just rather than they can't stop it. So they're just going to try to find a way to allow it and deal with it and live with it but the whole thing is the regime does not respect no boundaries as i said it has come to the it is not only for Af- against iranians it has come at the heart of europe in the united states in the united states uh, the irgc was hiring hitmen to carry out terror operations inside the u.s soil so they recognize no boundaries look the regime is in deep troubles at home i think one has to realize that the regime's Ashili Hills is inside Iran against the Iranian people. As you said very correctly, the Iranian people want change. A regime that massacres 30,000 of its opponents who are already imprisoned for years and years, and they're serving their terms in trials that last one or two minutes. And the people who are perpetrating a masterminding that massacre become its president. That's a, a state that the mass murderers ruled. So you cannot find a middle ground with such an estate. That's foolhardy, right. Right. and this is delusional. And we think, we think, the Iranians deserve the right to bring about the regime change by themselves and they, their resistance. And you have to keep remembering, nobody's asking for any taxpayers' money. Nobody is asking any boots on the ground. Nobody's asking for any weapons. All we're asking is the right policy, which coincidentally very much coincides with the uh, interest of the world for a peaceful uh, and tranquil situation. All right. If you look at the Middle East, every part of the Middle East, you see the mullahs, tentacles causing trouble, wreaking havoc. Shaheen, I, I have to interrupt this because we're at the end of our program. And I'll tell you that this uh, situation with Iran is probably the most disturbing that I see every day. Um, I wish you the best. Um, and doing what you do, and you do a great job of it. So I, I want to just thank you. Where can people go on the web to get more information about the NCRI? There is, uh, NCRI has a very uh, vibrant website, ncr-iran.org. I repeat, ncr-iran.org. Got it. And, and it provides updates constantly about the situation in Iran and some very insightful news and assessment. You have to remember the... Iranian resistance, and especially the People's Mujahideen, has a vast network in Iran. 
right. and they get a lot of first-hand information that you don't find anywhere else. All right, Shaheen Gubadi, a member of the National Council of Resistance of Iran and spokesperson for the NCRI, the website ncri-iran.org. Shaheen, thank you so much for joining us again this afternoon. I appreciate it. Have a nice day, and I wish you and all your listeners uh, the best of uh, days and weeks and months to come. All right. Thank you. And everybody, thank you for listening. We will see you again next week, everybody. Bye-bye. WNZK has a